I don't want to be there the day that she realizes she's not getting an opportunity because of the color of her skin or where she lives, the way she looks. And so it's my job to prepare her for that, but hopefully do as much as I can to make sure that that doesn't happen, that the work that we're doing, the education um, enables the world to be just that much better. Welcome to Life on the Land, the Grazy Her podcast, telling stories of rural and regional women. I'm Sky Manson. I'm your host for this episode. Today's guest is our cover girl, Yaru Bunaba woman Kara Peak, and she is a force to be reckoned with. She grew up in multicultural Melbourne and is a self-described geek who is incredibly intelligent. She studied law but soon found that the law was too slow for her and so she took matters into her own hands. Now she lives closer to her ancestors in the Kimberley where she runs her flagship event, Saltwater Country and the Cultural Intelligence Project. And this year, she's also the WA Agri-Futures Rural Woman of the Year. I've learnt that this girl has so much grit and she's not about making anyone feel comfortable, quite the opposite in fact. What she's achieving is pretty extraordinary and it seems that advocacy comes naturally to Kara Peak. Here's her story. As I, as I mentioned, I'm a Yaru one of the person. So Yaru, Yaru's uh, traditional country is um, Broome in Australia and the surrounding areas, and that abuts up to Gadajari country and um, you know, different uh, groups in the region. And also Boonaba, which is from the Fitzroy crossing area, the Fitzroy Valley. So they're kind of two quite different areas of this part of, of the country in that Yaru is saltwater country. And um, so we're right on the coast and it's made up of red rock, white sand and turquoise water. And Boonaba is freshwater country. So you've got the Fitzroy River that powers through uh, that area and um, a lot of obviously bushland and um, you know just a freshwater ecosystem that is you know obviously quite different to saltwater country. The way that uh, First Peoples or First Australians uh, describe their connection to country is that we are not separate from our country, we are one. So when I say that I'm from that country, I am that country, that's where my people are from since time immemorial. And so although I may, I mean, I've got relatives scattered across the world, but um, our traditional country is both of those areas. My grandmother is a Yaru Bunaba woman. Her mother was Bunaba. Um, her mother was taken to Beagle Bay Mission um, up on the peninsula. And her mother, so my great-great-grandmother, walked on foot to Beagle Bay Mission, which is days of walking to be with her child. And so my grandmother uh, was born at Beagle Bay Mission. Um, her parents were Yaru and Bunaba, and um, eventually they then, you know, moved with the family, et cetera, to Broome where they kind of set up home, which was where my um, great-grandfather was from. We'll sort of circle back around to that, but you didn't actually sure. grow up in that country. Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Melbourne, in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne, which is uh, where my dad's family was. 
And so, we, you know, we'd have trips back and forth to the Kimberley, but um, the vast majority of my childhood was spent, um, yeah, in Melbourne, multicultural kind of melting pot, uh, which I loved. And tell me a little bit about your parents. So my mum, obviously, Yara Bunaba, and her father is also um, Chinese, and uh, which is quite common in um, this part of the world with the long pearling industry and um, Broom having a long-standing kind of position as the most multicultural place in the country for the longest period of time. And uh, my mum is a nurse, and so she's lived a life of service for her community, but also the broader um, community. And my father is uh, born and raised in Melbourne back when it used to be more of an agricultural <laughs> um, part of the world. And um, basically suburbia was built up around kind of where he grew up. Well, he's retired now, but he um, was an industrial photographer by profession. But also back in the day, he, you know, uh, for a time there, he studied agriculture at Dukey College and um also worked in the abattoirs and and different things as well and he comes from an English Irish heritage. And do you feel that you have um, inherited some of his creativeness and also that giving sense too? Both of your parents. I think so. Yeah yeah they they wouldn't necessarily reflect on that and say that they were because it's just kind of who they are in a way and so I've, I've actually queried that with my mother. I'm like, you do realise you've literally lived a life of service. Mm-hmm. Like you are a nurse. You have worked um, as a midwife in theatre, in um, the you know, trauma hospital in Melbourne, et cetera, and, uh, and dad in his, in his own way as well. And, but I definitely think, you know, the creativity side of things probably came from my father um, and also you know, to extent elements of hustle, you know, working out how you can do things when faced with different challenges. And and I would say that that also came from my mum, but also a sense of strength and identity um, came from my mum in the sense that, you know, work with integrity, but at the same exact same moment, know exactly who you are and what you're capable of. Tell me more about how she instilled that strength of identity in you. Well, I think she led by example. She knew exactly who she was, where she was from, um, what she could do. And there was never a question that myself or my siblings um, would not be able to achieve what we set out to do. And she also prepared us quite well by ensuring that we were capable individuals before we went out into the world so you know as much as a teenager will roll their eyes when their parent says well how do you think you do that rather than giving you the answer um so you have the practice of working things out yourself and so i i think probably one of the greatest things that she gave us outside of the strength and the you know self-identity was actually an adaptability that we could then take into any profession that we chose or, or um, you know, community environment or whatever it might be um, that we, were, we are and have always been quite independent thinkers and workers and um, just looking for the adventure, but also always with that 
um, the mentality to give back and make sure the community or, you know, your circles of influence or whoever it might be, and particularly those at a disadvantage, um, are looked after as well. Socially, what was your childhood like? I was a classic 80s child that wore too much fluoro and had too many pairs of bike pants. But um, I look back at the the photos and I'm like, oh, dear God. Um, But I suppose I, I grew up in a community that was very multicultural. At the time, there was or there probably still is, uh, a lot of um, Greek and Italian, Cambodian and Vietnamese um, families that I grew up with, as well as uh, Anglo-Australians. And then it kind of melted into, like, you know, as I I was going through uni or, um, you know, growing as a young adult and I would go back and visit my uh, siblings and my parents and the, you know, the community would ebb and flow with the immigration trends. So, um, you know, more... Sri Lankan and Indian people or African now and, and different things. It's just like a beautiful coffee coloured nation and I'm a lover of food. So that was always, has always been a big part um, of my upbringing, but also of the culture that surrounded me. And so my childhood was, you know, relatively carefree. Um, you know, my parents worked very hard uh, to give us what we had. And so we, we were fortunate enough to go on, road trips and and explore um parts of australia and um yeah and yeah it was was pretty good and taking a little bit more of a step forward tell me about your schooling days and what you remember of them i suppose what sticks out for you was it more things from the classroom or more things from the playground um i (laughs) I think so I I went to so if you will to walk out of our family home you walk you know to the right a couple of blocks and there was my primary school you walk to the left a couple of blocks and there was my high school so I went to school in the neighborhood and so I remember it being a very like diverse school and um you know, quite fortunate in that sense that I didn't really feel like that I, you know, kind of stood out in any way. I was always a very driven student and um, kind of knew my path from a pretty early age. So I know that I was probably a bit more mature than, than other people in my age bracket. I started school a bit early and um, was extremely disappointed that I did not learn how to read comprehensively on the first day, apparently. Um, and, um, and that kind of bodes for the, you know, look forward. And that's kind of my approach, you know, to learning and to life is to fit as much in as I can. And um, so in school, I was quite often in advanced classes and, and things like that. And, and thankfully for the majority of my schooling teachers were able to accommodate that, which was rare because we we were in a small, um, you know, kind of public schools that, you know, underfunded, et cetera. Uh, But I had some teachers that took the time, you know, to give me some extra, some extra work and whatnot. And, um, you know, had, you know, plenty of friends and that was fun and um, no, no real dramas for me, but also probably because I'm not an easily intimidated person. So I never, had any real troubles in the playground or anything like that. It was all, all a matter of, um, 
yeah, just, just getting along. And, but I did find that I had to step up a couple of times when other people had those problems, but, um, yeah. So, and then in, from a learning perspective, uh, it was probably just never enough, uh, is, is probably key. And that's why I went on to, I did first year university psychology when I was in year 12, um, while I was completing my, Oh God, I think it was BCE or something they called it then. Um, it's a long time ago. And, um, so I kind of started my university education while I was still in high school to satisfy the need to learn. Um, and then, yeah, I went on from there. So I'm interested in what you were saying about the, um, the, the playground, I suppose, uh, because you grew up in such a multicultural community, do you think that buffered, I'm assuming here from things like racism or was it evident to you and you just knew how to manage it? I think I probably knew how to manage it, but um, the most racism that I ever received was actually, from that would work at the school rather than the kids themselves so sure kids learn bad habits from their parents and whatnot but um i distinctly remember um volunteering i was a nerd by the way volunteering to work in the cafe or the canteen or whatever they're called and um as part of that they would let you you know, take a chocolate bar or a toasted sandwich or something, um, you know, in recognition of you helping out. And um, I, there was a canteen lady that, you know, I would see every day and, um, you know, we, we didn't know each other well, but she knew I was helping out and, and different things and, and she was great. But then it was actually one of the other volunteer mothers that um, I overheard her saying to the canteen lady, um, oh, that coloured girl, she just took a chocolate bar. She just stole a chocolate bar. Mm. And um, for me, that resonated with me because I knew full well that I was allowed to do that because I had been helping out. It was only one, you know, it's probably a Mars bar or something like that. Probably something I shouldn't have been eating. But anyway, um, but it was what resonated with me was the assumption that because I was coloured, I was stealing it. Mm. And so it was those types of experiences that have kind of stuck with me. And then also I had a couple, I had one particular teacher that um, despite the fact that I was an advanced student in a lot of the, you know, curriculum that I was doing, she just assumed that I would not be capable or didn't even bother to offer me the opportunity to study um, at more senior level literature or our university literature and things like that. And um, whereas she offered the exact same opportunity to um, other students that were white, essentially. And, and it wasn't until um, I pushed the point, I was more interested, I was quite good at literature, but I was more interested in the psychological um, or the psychology classes. And I brought up that opportunity to my psychology teacher. And I said, I, you know, can I do that with this course? And he was like, yeah, 100%. We'll, we'll work it out because you can do it. And I ended up getting, um, I remember distinctly doing the psychology exam for year 12 and thinking I'd finished it and think, thinking, oh, oh crap, no, I have to, I'll just check through, make sure I've done all, all the questions and I'd actually missed the back page. And um, I quickly did it and I looked at it and it's like, oh, no, 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 I know all the answers to this. And I ended up getting a perfect score on that exam. But had I not pushed, 
to be afforded that opportunity, I would have missed out. And it was because they would just look at me and go, oh no, yeah, she doesn't want to do that. Mm. So that it was more the systemic racism that came through rather than um, the face-to-face in the playground because I can handle that with my, you know, but as a child, which is, you know, you still are a child when you're a teenager, um, you know, I had enough strength in me to kind of fight for that, but I shouldn't have had to. Did, did these experiences lead you to want to study law? Is that, did that play a part in that? Possibly. I think that um, my, my parents are in their own ways advocates for their beliefs, of course, and the, uh, the beliefs of their communities and, and whatnot. And I had always had instilled in me a sense of social justice anyway. And then that was probably solidified through those experiences. And so when I went on to study law and I was accepted on a full ride to Melbourne Uni, um, I, in the, I distinctly remember that I was in my, probably my first class, torts class, and um, people were asked why, why they chose to study law. And a huge amount of it, people, you know, my, my parents are lawyers, my, you know, whatever it might be, mm. I got the score to get in. And I was literally the only person that said, because I want to help people. And the I think. The only person that wanted to do it, do you think? Or wanted to help people, wanted to use. To, to study. Yeah. But also like there's a difference between wanting to do it. So you have a secure career and wanting to do it because you want to help people less fortunate than yourself. And, but that was the reason that I'd studied law. Did you always, you, you said you've always had a strong sense of social justice. Do you think you always wanted to be a lawyer or when the time came, that was the right fit for you? I think that I always wanted to be what I thought a lawyer was uh, in comparison to, in my experience, for me, working in the law did not necessarily fit my entrepreneurial mindset Mm. so it's it's a strength to have don't get me wrong it's it's an extremely valuable skill and um, valuable practical experience and exposure that I've had um, to know to know my rights to know the rights of others and to be able to find those out if I'm not sure what those are so those you know critical thinking and all that kind of stuff um, fit well with the advocacy piece that has been instilled in me um, but I'm sure I probably had, I definitely did not um, kind of think about how slow things take to change, you know, like this snail's pace that it, that it occurs at. And um, so that's probably, that's one of the main reasons, one of two reasons why I left the law was I thought that I could affect quicker um, change and embed change in the work that I did on a day-to-day basis if I was not practising law per se. Okay. So could you join the dots for me, Cara? What, <laughs> how did you end up in the Kimberley? Okay. So I finished my law degree in, at UBC in Canada um, and I went on to become a snow bum for a season and a bit uh, snowboarding, just taking a break after having finished five years of study and and then I worked in community relations and engagement um, 
in Arizona and Northwest Territories of Canada and different things. And eventually I decided that mm, I'm, I better come back and uh, practice law or like do what I was you know, trained to do. Um, I went on to work for the federal court and, and different things. And that gave me the opportunity to, start, to travel a bit in particular with the native title law. And so I decided at that point that I'd always wanted to come back to the Kimberley. I wanted to spend more time with my family, in particular my grandmother, and um, re reconnect to country. And so I became a, well, I accepted a position as a solicitor or I sought out a position, in fact, um, with the Kimberley Land Council representing um, native title claimants across the Kimberley, obviously only the ones that I was not directly connected to. Um, and so that brought me back, yeah, to the Kimberley. And I have, I travel a huge amount for work and the different things that I do, but the Kimberley is my home. It's my base. Um, yeah. And, and there's a huge amount of work, good work that can be done up here. Absolutely. I'm interested when, when you first moved there though, was that your intention to, for it to be your home or your base or were you just, you know, mentally there for a period of time to reconnect and then move on? I think at that time I was still quite keen to, you know, maybe live in the US again or live in different parts of the country. I think that it was, I did not intend to it to be a permanent base. However, my job or the work and, and the company that I ended up developing with my sister, et cetera, um, then allowed me to have the best of both worlds. So I still had the connection, you know, we still do work internationally and um, in, you know, different parts of Australia, et cetera, but I'm lucky enough to be able to call Broome my home, whereas before I didn't think I'd be able to achieve both of those things. So that wasn't the original intent. We'll be back with Cara in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Seed Terminator helped Grazy Her bring you this story as they truly get what this is all about. Connection and innovation. A homegrown South Australian business with roots on Kangaroo Island, Seed Terminator's ethos revolves around technology rooted in a love for the land and respect for those who nurture it. Their mission is to safeguard our farmers for future generations while making the biggest possible difference to the world of food production. They do this by producing groundbreaking ag tech that offers farmers an economic, sustainable, foolproof way to banish weeds for good. The Terminator is a simple attachment to the rear of the combine and uses steel to crush, shear, impact and grind the weed-laden shaft material, killing 99% of weeds non-chemically. To find out more, head to seedterminator.com.au. What's the biggest thing keeping you there? Uh, the potential to make a real difference and um, to uphold, you know, my grandmother and my family's legacy in doing that. Wow. So explain that more to me. What's the difference <laughs> that you want to make? Well, I look at the Kimberley and I look at a lot of uh, regional, remote and rural communities and I just see a world of potential but a lack of investment and a lack of capacity. And it's not the fault of the people that are in these communities. 
it's due to a lack of investment um, or education or et cetera that has been provided for in these regions. And I'm a person that has obviously fought for the opportunities that I've had and worked very hard for my education and my work experience, but I can now bring that knowledge along with my sister and other professionals, Indigenous people, you know, the first Australians, we can um, break through and connect to the lived experience of the, our constituents in the region, um, both younger, older, the same age as us, and we can bring that world to them and bring those connections and opportunities and access to those opportunities to them, whether it be the difference between understanding your rights in Australia, the sustainable development goals of the UN and different um, you know, global policies and how Australia interacts with them and what we can do here to um, angel investment and entrepreneurial accelerator programs and different things that we do. And we can also, you know, I've developed Saltwater Country Limited with the view to providing a culturally intelligent, relevant regional response to our community and I can see the big picture, but I can also see all the little steps in between. And now our community um, is really starting to understand the method in the madness, I suspect. Um, so, um, and that is the gap. So in triple R communities, not just Indigenous, but triple R communities, a lot of the time, there is a real subpar advisory piece where a lot of people make a lot of money off giving poor advice to our communities. And so, and part of that is because some of our community members, not all, but don't have the experience, the professional experience to understand how to critique the advice when given. By having people like me, of which I'm of course not the only one, but people like me in the regions, we can bring the best of both worlds together what we find in communities like ours, um, particularly in regional areas, is that there's a brain drain on the regions. And so the the smart, capable people, quite rightly, will take um, off that where those skills are either marketable or, um, you know, and are paid for. And But I do think there's an opportunity that's arisen out of COVID, which is my business has always operated remotely. I have chosen to live here and travel as and when required. But um, for the most part, we just operate remotely. And so now other people are realising that that's actually possible. And hopefully that means that, um, you know, some of our, our crew, if possible, will come home and be able to deliver for their community like they want to, but actually be in situ as well. How long had you been in the Kimberley before the seed of an idea for Saltwater Country came up? Oh, not long. I think I probably went to my first rodeo pretty quickly. Um, my family, particularly the Bunaba side, but Yaru side as well, um, have always been involved in the pastoral industry. I knew full well that the pastoral industry in this country was largely built off free labour. Um, that being Aboriginal people and, and the Aboriginal people still have the connection to the pastoral industry and as a flow on of that to rodeo and a rodeo way of life as well. And so I knew that our communities, our people will turn up for those events 
And then I thought, wow, what a captive audience. And what if we actually develop something where our people are running it from top to bottom? And so it is a visual representation of our excellence and our brilliance and our courage and our resilience, but it also is a employment and training mechanism as well and something that we can invite other people into. So it didn't take me too long to, to know that that would be a good option or a good, uh, I suppose, a conduit for change rather than a solution. Um, and to create, you know, rite of passage in doing so. But it, of course, uh, starting from zero dollars, it takes a while to build um, a, or takes a while to build anything when you've got no money. And in this instance, Saltwater Country is still predominantly volunteer operated, um, albeit we have, uh, you know, employees and, and contractors for the large scale event that we run. But um, it's a hope that, you know, the current Rural Women's um, Award process, having been the state winner for Western Australia, but then continuing on, will be able to provide people out there, that, you know, listeners or, whom, or readers or whomever, with information about how that they can actually get involved and how they can, um, yeah, help us build that. So we are a self-sustaining non-profit organisation that not only delivers in the Kimberley, but hopefully we can... Uh, build out or scale our opportunities, our training methodologies to other Triple R communities. For rodeos specifically or just events generally? Everything. If you look at a large event and you imagine, close your eyes, walk into a large event and what are the things that you see? You see hospitality, you see marketing, you see logistics, risk, um, you know, stage management, whatever, albeit with rodeo, obviously you throw in the stock as well. Um, so you need skill sets for all of that. And the majority of that, including project management, um, communications, different things are transferable skills. So um, we hope that, you know, in 20 years time, 50 years time, you know, grandparents can speak to their grandkids and, you know, like, oh, you know what, that's where I got my first job. Um, and that could be the place where, you know, their next generation gets their first job or first first chance to prove, you know, what they can do. Tell me what the atmosphere was like at that first rodeo. Hectic. It's always hectic. <laughs> um, it's, it's always down to the wire. And it's interesting because um, we had uh, Daryl Chong, who's a five-time Australian bullfighting champion, come over last year um, to, to work our event and also take part in our clinics. And, and he works the Mount Isa Rodeo annually and he said it doesn't matter how much money you've got <laughs> how much um you know how many people you've got on the ground it's always hectic like even though you know their event has been around for like 60 years or something so that made me feel a little bit better because I like to be an organized person when it comes to these things and um so there's a lot of electricity in the air anticipation um but also in a positive way so I think that that you know that first rodeo we're really cutting our teeth on it. Like um, my sister and I, Adele and I, uh, have managed other events, large-scale festivals and different things through our company. So we knew what needed to be done. But when you are operating as a non-profit um, with a small, small core group uh, and volunteers, and, of course, some volunteers 
you know, you can't expect as much of them as you would a paid individual. So you have to manage the expectations of all involved, but um, by and large, a very positive experience where our community um, was very excited. And just, just this year with the event this year that we were able to pull off despite COVID, um, you know, a lot of our community that have come to a few of them are just like, yeah, now we get it. Like we can see the potential of this. And they're like, great show another great show. Thank you so much. You know, all these things, which makes it all worthwhile. How did you manage to pull it off this year? Well, <laughs> so, uh, we, yeah, we were fortunate that our event is always scheduled in September. So it was not scheduled at the front end, which is good, you know, for 2020. Mm. And also we were fortunate that we secured multi-year funding from the state and from the local government um, of which this year was the second year of a three three year type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did have to go into bat and fight for that money to be given to us because of the assumption, at least at the local level, the assumption that no event would be happening, um, albeit by that time, by the time August rolled around, you know, WA was in a pretty good position and the Kimberley had actually been locked off for a long time, for quite a few months to protect our communities. And um, I went in to fight for it because in my view, our event, and I proved it to be correct, our event was needed by our community. We needed a light at the end of, you know, the tunnel. But also we were able to put on a very successful event solely reliant on West Australian suppliers Mm. and um, the vast majority of those being from the local region, from the Kimberley. And so, yeah, it's a lovely thing to have to be able to invite international and interstate, say, performers or or rodeo um, champions or whatever. But ultimately, we are a place-based, people-centred initiative and can do it on homegrown soil with those skills if we need to. And this year was our biggest event to date. Mm, so good. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain to me, I've, in a lot of your literature, you talk about the Aboriginal cowboys being a, a, a symbol of freedom. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, if you think about how this nation was established, uh, good, bad and ugly, the pastoral industry, even when our people were working essentially as slave labour for free, for tea and coffee and flour, um, the, it enabled our people to remain on country. So for some of, uh, some of our, our people, unfortunately, obviously, um, were the victims of massacres or forced removal um, and et cetera. However, for those that were fortunate enough to stay on country and were allowed to work um, in the pastoral industry, it gave them a sense of freedom that they could not get anywhere else. If they were in a town camp, they were watched like hawks. They were only, they were on curfew. Like Broome had a common gate where, you know, it's an apartheid nation where you had to have a pass to be allowed in town after a certain hour. And obviously when you're out in the station and you slog your guts out and you work, you know, 
ridiculous hours, but you do have a sense of freedom. You can still be in the bush. Um, and so the, uh, you know, Aboriginal stock men and stock women had that level. I'm not saying it was an easy life, but it was, um, something that really resonated and connected with the way of being, of being on country. And, and that kind of evolved obviously in the rodeo circuit as well, because it was a, and I'm not saying the judging was always fair, but it, it's a, a platform where they could show their skills and go head to head with the next person who may not be Indigenous. So I think that both of those things combined enabled people to be on country, to show their skills, to look after their family, to still like particularly up here during wet season when law business is on, like our traditional practices, it enabled them to still be able to go and do that stuff, which they would not have been able to do had they you know, been shipped off to a mission, for example, that wasn't on their country. And to, to wind forward to now and what you were talking a little bit about before, how did COVID affect the, the Kimberley and Indigenous communities in the Kimberley culturally with things like gatherings and stuff like that? How difficult was that to not be able to do that? Oh, quite difficult, um, particularly for people that um, had family members pass away. Um, so we have particular cultural practices and I'm not, they didn't pass away from COVID, but they just, you know, for other reasons. And, um, so there are particular cultural practices during sorry business. Uh, there's, uh, particular funeral processes and all those different things. So I think that that's probably one of the hardest hit, um, groups of the community who are, people are still catching up on funerals that were supposed to happen, um, months, months ago. So I think that's, and, and of course, as you can imagine, as people are grieving um, and trying to go through that process and then being told that they can't do the process as they normally would and a process that's integral to the cultural connection um, and integration of our people, then that, that's probably the hardest hit. Um, yeah, but, you know, we'll get through it. We've COVID is not the first set of uh, trials and tribulations that, first Australians have encountered. So. That's right. That's right. And I ha- haven't even begun to get a good sense of you of what it's like for the Kimberley. You sort of describe it as um, a community that's still grappling with intergenerational trauma, has one of the highest mm-hmm. suicide rates in the world. Um, to describe for me what that looks like in a really tangible sense for people that don't live up there and don't see it every day. So I recently delivered a workshop for a group of people like through my company and I took them through what the COVID experience for the world or at least for other Australians has been. So if you imagine that you are on lockdown you uh, are a person with mental health issues. There may be DV or domestic violence situation or a potential domestic violence situation, the anxiety and the stress uh, that you've encountered for that. Perhaps you're a person who does not have very good health generally and um, but doesn't have access or can't afford um, you know, the medication. Perhaps you're in an overcrowded house. You have a family with seven or eight kids and um, you are interconnected to people, but you're not allowed to connect with them. So if you take all of those things, 
pile them up and then you were told that that didn't happen to you, if you were to have naysayers, well, there, I mean, there are some COVID naysayers, but if you were to say, come along and, no, that didn't happen. You didn't go through that. You're imagining it. It's all in your head. And you were to multiply that by 200-something years and in the process, more children are born, people die, and you're denied the right for the most part, to talk about it, to process it. Anybody that does believe you, perhaps mental health practitioners that do want to help you, but they don't speak your language. They don't understand your lived experience. Um, the people that do and that can are few and far between and they're not in your community and they can't help you. So you compile all of that over an, a large number of years across multiple generations and tell me that you wouldn't be affected by that. And so it's when I talk about it in kind of that way because now the world has a, lived, a similar and a common lived experience, albeit in different degrees. And those things naturally, if they're not dealt with, if trauma is not dealt with, it manifests, it festers, it turns into anger, it gets into, like there's studies that show that it gets into your DNA and affects your health and then it's and then it's perpetuated for the next generation it results in you know some families not all but some families who have been had their children taken away and then those children become parents and they may not um, they may not know or recognize why they do or don't connect to their child or they can or cannot manage their their own anger or, or mental health and so all of those things combined the one sh the two things that get in or three that get indigenous people through are our connections to culture our humor and our hope and so it's not a hopeless affair but we deserve to be listened to and we deserve to design our own solutions Part of saltwater country is offering a rite of passage and creating a rite of passage. Is that by and large missing for most Indigenous people in the Kimberley? I think a stepped out rite of passage and process that has been for the most part informed by community input and engagement and um, where there are a few leaders that understand every piece of the puzzle. I think that is missing. I mean, I, you know, you could argue that's missing in other parts of society as well. Um, I think definitely organisations that truly understand the barriers that are faced and the access and opportunity that is required to create a critical path to success so we can make up the time that we do not have is missing in the Kimberley. Um, and it's in missing in other parts of, you know, of this country. And so by trying to pull together different partners, different skill sets in a platform that resonates with our community um, and, and that's what creates the rite of passage because you get the buy-in, you get the acceptance, you may get some tough love along the way, don't get me wrong, it's not all roses, but, um, but people know that they 
are respected and valued. And so if they, they come and work for us and they go away and do something else, but then they come back, that's cool. And um, so I hope that that the event and also uh, the training in the academy that we are working on developing can provide that and that the intention is obviously for myself and the people that set it up to step away um, and have that regenerated in the next generation that we're currently working with. How do you get there? You've obviously achieved it um, to some extent. What are some of the keys in that? Um, But I believe that people walk into a room with preset ideas of what the outcome is going to be. And they walk in not knowing, as is quite common these days, people are a bit more more aware of their unconscious bias and and things like that. But they're very rarely willing to do the work to unpack that. And so for me, and I by no means, I I did not grow up um, in a cultural way like many of my brothers and sisters in, um, you know, in the Kimberley or in the Central desert or you know places like that so I don't have that level of cultural knowledge however what I do have is the ability to bridge the divide and to get non-indigenous Australians to identify the lenses that they view the world with whether it be their culture their lived experience their religion socioeconomic status gender whatever it is there's a certain set of lenses, and I often liken it to, I don't know if you've ever gotten your eyes tested for glasses or contacts or whatever, but an optometrist will put different lenses in front of your eyes until you can see clearly, and that's a prescription that you end up with. And everybody's starting from a different starting point. And so the journey that I think people need to go on is recognising that, yeah, we're all different, But if you do the work, we can come to a common understanding. And so that's probably the vast, you know, the the majority of the work that I do. It's delivered in different ways, but that's the majority of the work that I do because in every conversation I'm trying to push those boundaries, increase that understanding, bring in a different perspective. Not everybody's going to agree with me. That's perfectly fine. Like I'm not doing my job if I don't make people feel uncomfortable because that's then hopefully creating enough cognitive dissonance in themselves to enable them to self-reflect and go, oh, actually, why do I think like that? Why am I feeling like this? Why am I reacting in this way? And I think if more people actually took the time to do that, then, um, you know, we'd have better outcomes for all. And in particular, in communities like black communities, like indigenous communities, that have been locked out of the game for a very long time. We need non-Indigenous people and non-Indigenous Australians to go on that journey to help open a few doors. We don't want handouts. We're happy to do the work. We do the work every day, but there's a lot of people that don't. Are you enjoying the world of advocacy? Oh, I love it. (laughs) That's your calling. I think I actually, hey? That's your calling. Yeah, I think I actually quite thrive on it. Like um, at any point that I think that or even if I get an inkling of something unjust or illogical or whatever um, that has occurred and and if I feel that I can help with that and there's a space and a place for me to help with that, then then I will do it and I really enjoy it. 
you're our cover girl for the 2020 Crazy Her <laughs> Summer Edition. What was that like? A surprise. Um, <laughs> I actually got a phone call from, or a message rather, from the photographer who's a friend of mine. Um, and she's like, ooh, cover girl. And I'm like, what? Because I was in a meeting and I hadn't, Crazy Her had sent me the email, but I hadn't seen it because I was doing something else. And I was like, what? And then I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, there I am, right front and center. But the funnier thing was is that um, obviously they send it to you to get proofed and whatever. And I, um, I said to my mom who, so we recently lost um, my grandmother, her mother. And so, it's, you know, it's a pretty tough time at the moment. And, but I said to mom, I'm like, you want to hear something that'll make you laugh? And she's like, what? And I said, yeah, but she never hit thought you'd hear these words come out of my mouth. And she's like, what are you talking about? Because, you know, you could hedge your bets either way with me. And um, and then I'm like, I'm a cover girl. And she's like, what? Like she practically screamed and then burst into laughter, but then finished the sentence with, can I have a copy? <laughs> like <laughs> in true mom style, you know? Yeah. So it was... Uh, you know, it's a privilege um, to, to be allowed or to be given the opportunity to do that for, for so many reasons. And um, being on the cover of things and uh, is not really, that's not my default position. I'm, I'm not looking for the accolades and things. I mean, I very much appreciate them when they come by as long as there's a purpose behind them, you know. That you know that that exposure then allows exposure of saltwater country of um, the indigenous narrative of what we're trying to do and the things our community is going through. So if me being in the limelight enables that to happen, then you know I will gracefully and gratefully accept. I have two more questions for you. What's, uh, what's coming up? Well, this is a very probably huge question, but just briefly, what's coming up for the cultural intelligence um, project and saltwater country that we can sort of look forward to? Okay, so the cultural intelligence project next year, probably in Q1, we are going to launch Make It Happen HQ, which is an Indigenous entrepreneurs and innovation hub. And through that, we and that's based, the first one will be based in Broome. And through that, we'll be delivering an Indigenous business accelerator for budding or existing entrepreneurs. We will be delivering um, other, you know, business advisory and back-of-house services. And basically, it's just to cut through and create that critical path uh, for success for Indigenous people in the Kimberley and those that um, believe that they are or are existing entrepreneurs and will also be going online with um, our cultural IQ program, which is an online learning platform that's scalable to live events where people can do that work that I was just talking about, um, you know, working on the lenses that they view the world with, working on um, enabling them to really create positive impact in, um, you know, First Nations or Indigenous peoples' communities. And... So, yeah, so there'll be a variety of programs, both both face-to-face and um, virtual in there. And then for Saltwater Country, we are hoping to, you know, add a few more events, get back on to our clinic schedule, because obviously this year we had, last year we had three-time PBR world champion Adriano Marais come over from Brazil and teach our kids. Mm. But we couldn't do that, obviously, this year. So hopefully at least 
in the Australian context, there might be a few champs that are willing to come to Broome and subject to border restrictions and whatnot so we can get our clinic schedule back on track. But we've also, we'll be having our second year of the Saltwater Stories program, which is a creative industries program. Uh, last This year we unveiled a life-size sculpture of a bull and bull rider that had been created through that, through recycled materials with disengaged youth and one of our um, non-profit partners in, in Broome. And um, some of the kids will also be continuing with their film and photography training through that, through Galari Media. So, yeah, we're not slowing down. It's no. just um, we'll work out how to deliver what we want to deliver in, you know, kind of in the parameters that we, we all find ourselves in at the moment. I know that there's someone in your life called Stevie and I have a feeling that she's very important to you. Can you tell me about her? Stevie is my bibi and my bibi in like Yaru, that means that she's my daughter, I'm her mother. And that's because she's the daughter of my sister. So in our culture, uh, all what, what in a Western culture would be considered aunties, they're all mothers to the next generation, the children. And so my Bibi is um, a little, just turned four years old, going on like 34. Um, she's just an amazing little individual, Stevie. She's really independent, really intelligent, thirst for learning, wicked sense of humour already. And um, I really feel like, you know, you look, sometimes you look at a kid and you're like, that's my heart, that's... There's no other way to explain it. And that's, that's what she is to me. Oh, wow. A, an additional inspiration for you. Oh, hundred percent because. Or the inspiration. It's, yeah. It's my, I don't want to be there the day that she realizes she's not getting an opportunity because of the color of her skin mm. or where she lives, the way she looks. And so it's my job to prepare her for that but hopefully do as much as I can to make sure that that doesn't happen, that the work that we're doing, the education and et cetera, um, enables the world to be just that much better and for the people that she encounters hopefully to be that much better but also for her to be informed enough um, and confident enough and strong enough to withstand it when it does actually happen. What a note to end on. I love that. Um, Cara, thank you so much. It has been fascinating and illuminating and educating and everything speaking to you. So thanks so much for taking the time no to this Life on the Land. Thank you very much for having me. I was thoroughly enthralled by Kara's story and the doggedness that she has for her cause. I like it that she said to me that it's not my job to make people feel comfortable. And after learning more about her, I just know that she'll continue to drive real change for Indigenous Australians. Well, really for, for all Australians everywhere. Kara was really hard to tie down. She's insanely busy. So thank you, Kara, for being so generous enough to share your story with us at Life on the Land. Thank you also to today's sponsor, Seed Terminator. As we laughed about, Kara is on the cover. 
as we laughed about, Cara is on the cover of the summer edition of Grazy Her. So pop down to your local news agency and see if you can get yourself a copy. Otherwise, you can order yourself one online at grazyher.com.au. If you already have the mag, be sure to check out the Grazy Her Christmas gift guide at grazyher.com.au. We'll be back again next week with a very special Christmas edition of Life on the Land to welcome in Christmas and also herald the beginning of a little bit of a break for the Grazy Her team. Until then, take care.